Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Jennifer Palmer covers education, and this week she wrote about a substantial dip in test scores among Oklahoma students. Jennifer, what did the test scores show? We saw um, decreases in proficiency rates across basically all grades and subjects that are tested, which was not unexpected. Uh, certainly something you know we did expect to see based on the amount of disruption that we had in schools last year. Are there some caveats to go along with that data? Does it have an asterisk next to it because of COVID? Definitely, yeah. Um, participation rates were way down last year. In a normal year, about 99% of Oklahoma students take the state test. And this is only for third through eighth graders and 11th graders who test in certain subjects. Um, the federal um, requirement is 95%. And you know we always hit that. This year, they waived the federal requirement, and um, we saw some schools and some grades that were much, much lower, even in like the 30 to 40 percent at some schools. Um, and anything below 95 percent is not representative of your student body. So if you see a school or a grade that tested below that 95 percent, you can't really make any type of um, you know, assumptions about that score based on the rest of the students. Is there anything we can conclude or examine from this year's test scores that compare Oklahoma to neighboring states or the rest of the nation? So participation is one thing we can look at compared to other states. Um, Oklahoma was actually quite high, even um, averaging 91 to 92 percent. Um, some states tested much less. Um, but the scores are not really something we can compare. You know, this is our Oklahoma state test. It's based on Oklahoma standards. So it's different than what they test kids in other states. Um, there's really no no way to um, to look how look at how Oklahoma stacks up until we get things like ACT, SAT, and NAEP, which is going to be a while. Okay. I You know, when I, I look at these scores, one of the things that uh, – uh, causes me some concern and, and takes me back a little is, is probably the word proficiency, right? And so I look at these scores, and in, in every category I looked at, we were at a third or less of our students were proficient in both math and English. It, is that um, a reasonable reaction? Is that what that really means? So you have to remember that in 2017, Oklahoma um, readjusted its standards and what students are learning and what they're being tested on. And before 2017, we had what they called a um, honesty gap. And that basically meant that students could score quite high on the state test, but then when they went to take a national test like the ACT, SAT, or NAEP, they scored much lower. And that's because the way we were testing was somewhat inflated and not nationally competitive. So we redid that in 2017. So, you know, some of the older students that are tested now haven't had that, those realigned standards and tests their whole school career. You know, they've only been around for a couple of years. Okay. What, uh, what comes next now for parents, for students, for teachers? 
you know, I've heard some ideas thrown out there like, you know, we need to lower our standards or we need to have everybody repeat a grade. I don't think any of those ideas are going to be, um, you know, they're not going to have any uh, any legs. Um, the state's plan to address this is basically using the federal COVID relief funds and really encouraging schools to do things like um, high dosage tutoring. That's getting kids who are behind in after school, before school, you know, outside of, of class time to kind of catch up and learn some of those concepts that they missed and working on, um, you know, helping teachers teach better. So there's a lot of programs that the state is doing to um, train teachers and how to teach reading and, um, and math and kind of helping those kids um, keep going through the standards that they're supposed to learn at grade level, but also address some of the gaps that they may have. Thanks, Jennifer. Listeners can read Jennifer's story about the dip in student test scores at oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross has been covering Oklahoma's criminal justice system and its ongoing staffing problems. The DOC recently offered bonuses and temporary raises in an effort to alleviate the problem. Keaton, which DOC employees will be eligible for the bonus and bonuses and raises? Yeah, so newly hired corrections officers, so people coming into the DOC uh, will be eligible for a $2,500 bonus. Um, they, they'll get it, and then, but they'll have to pay it back if they leave state government within a year. Um, and then as far as the raises are concerned, um, officers at prisons deemed critically understaffed um, will receive $1.50 per hour uh, temporary pay raise until they're able uh, to hire more staff there. How, how's the state going to pay for all that? I mean, if they're, if they're shorthanded, that suggests they're open positions, so that salaries they're not paying, which would be some savings to the state, but is that going to be enough to cover those bonuses and raises? Yeah, so last the last legislative session, lawmakers passed House Bill 2908, uh, which is basically a line-item budget item directing the Department of Corrections to spend $8 million to improve prison staffing um, to hire and retain more uh, correctional officers specifically. Um, so they'll pull funds from from that $8 million um, to pay for these bonuses and temporary pay raises. Um, while they've had these open positions, uh, they've also had to pay overtime to the people uh, they have now. Um, so that it's kind of a give and take there. A little bit of a wash, sure, that makes sense. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on why staffing is such an important topic in the prison system? And, you know, what kinds of problems and risks uh, are on the table when there aren't enough officers on duty? Yeah, so it, it works both ways for the safety of uh, the corrections officers and also the, the people incarcerated there. Um, if you're, you know, an officer at an understaffed prison, it's not unheard of to be looking after 100, 200 people um, by yourself or on a unit yourself. And uh, that, that poses certain risks. Um, I've heard people tell me that, you know, if they're if, you know, the prisoners wanted to uprise and take over, they could just because there's not. Uh, the manpower there. And that also lends to problems, you know, contraband coming in, cell phones coming in. If you don't have enough people, you know, monitoring the facility uh, can be easier for, you know, that stuff to come in and, and make it more difficult to weed out. Um, and so there's, there's that aspect of it. And then just, you know, if there's, you know, 
fights or problems, you know, somebody needs medical attention. Uh, that's all made more difficult when you don't have enough people. Well, we've heard so much, too, about prison overcrowding in Oklahoma. I, I would suspect that uh, ec- prisons that are extra crowded, tensions are running higher, tempers are shorter. That makes it even more dangerous for the guards, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that would that would definitely make sense, you know, especially you have some uh, minimum security facilities where, you know, you have guys in bunk beds in a common room and you're all kind of together for long periods of time and there's not, you know, you're, you're all packed together. Tensions are, are bound to run high at some point. Why, why has it been so difficult for the state to recruit and, and hire and train officers? Uh, there are a number of different factors at play there. Um, first of all, it's just a tough job. I mean, not everyone is cut out to work in a prison for 12 hours a day and, and face those kinds of risks. Um, most of the jobs are in rural areas. Um, so you're not pulling from most of the time you're not pulling from, you know, Oklahoma city or Tulsa area. And there, there just may not be enough people. And then, uh, the third major aspect of it is just the pay. Um, the starting pay is fifteen seventy four an hour. Um, and as we've seen, you know, inflation and wages go up over the past couple of years. A lot of folks are saying that's just not competitive at this point. Uh, that makes sense. How, how are the officers reacting to the news of, of the bonuses and raises? Yeah. So after this uh, news broke last Wednesday, I talked to uh, Bobby Cleveland, who's the head of the Oklahoma Corrections Professionals. And he said, you know, it's a, it's a positive development. Um, we'll hopefully help get some new people in. Um, there is some skepticism as far as um, what are they going to do for the people who have been there a while. Um, this doesn't necessarily apply to those folks, um, but certainly potential for more news in the future. Great. Thanks, Keaton. And listeners can find all the current data about the uh, understaffing at the prisons at OklahomaWatch.org. Whitney Bryan has been covering the spike in domestic violence that Oklahoma has seen since the onset of the pandemic. And October happens to be Domestic Violence Awareness Month, so this is an especially timely topic. Whitney, when did you start covering domestic violence and what prompted that reporting? I've been covering domestic violence for Oklahoma Watch since about 2018, uh, which is when I started with Oklahoma Watch. Uh, I had been doing a story about how the YWCA in Oklahoma City was adding pet kennels to its domestic violence shelter. And I spoke with a victim who was refusing to seek shelter um, to get out of an extremely violent situation at home because she couldn't bring her pit bull, Safi, with her to the shelter. And this woman had experienced, um, you know, she was in the hospital, she was badly beaten um, by her ex-boyfriend, and she was still refusing to go to the shelter uh, because they wouldn't allow her to bring her dog with her. And, you know, this was just one of many barriers that this woman described to me in terms of escaping that terrifying situation that she was in at home. Um, You know, she didn't have the money to move out on her own. She was terrified that if she left, you know, her ex-boyfriend would retaliate um, and, and that people wouldn't believe what was happening to her, even though she now had these visible marks. And her story just really um, touched me in a way that, you know, I think a lot of, of people like myself at the time don't know how terrifying this can be. And, um, and her story really 
made it a reality for me, and I wanted to help to do that for readers as well. Um, and in reporting that story, you know, I also learned that Oklahoma has some of the highest rates of domestic violence in the country, um, and that in Oklahoma at that time, uh, domestic violence charges were considered nonviolent, um, which is a state statute that we had in place, and that just seemed you know, really out of place and, and terrifying for these victims. And I, I wanted to help them tell their stories. What, what else surprised you in the last three years covering this topic? You know, one of the most, frankly, horrifying things I learned in reporting on this topic was that strangulation has become um, an increasing form of domestic violence experienced by victims here in Oklahoma and really across the nation. Um, you know, when you talk about control and power, there really isn't kind of more a, a better example of that, right, than someone having their bare hands around your neck and literally holding their life in your hands. And what I learned in doing this reporting was that about 80% of women who are abused by their partner in Oklahoma reported being strangled by them at some point. So that was really, um, that was really horrifying and, and scary to hear uh, from a lot of victims. Another thing that stood out to me was that in Oklahoma, a lot of domestic violence abusers are being given a diversion program called batterer intervention rather than going to prison um, for these charges. And that program is about a year long, um, kind of equated to a sort of group therapy program, obviously a bit more intensive than that. Um, but a lot of these perpetrators in batterer's intervention, they fail the program multiple times and are given various chances to um, correct that, try again, complete the program before the courts um, actually take action and send them to prison. So that was also pretty surprising to me. How's that landscape changed since you started covering this? Yeah, I mean, COVID made a big impact. It was really hard for me to reach victims and advocates during COVID for obvious reasons, um, trying not to be in person. But also a lot of the resource centers that I was used to talking to who were trying to innovate to help victims, now they were really just focused on trying to get basic needs to people who needed them. Um, so it really went went back down to the foundations of trying to help these women. Where, where can women go for help? There are a lot of places to go. There's shelters and resource centers all across the state, including Palomar and the YWCA in Oklahoma City, Divis in Tulsa. But there's one main number that you can call if you want to find out how to get help. And that number is 800-522-SAFE. 800-522-SAFE. S-A-F-E. Perfect. Thanks, Whitney. And you can read all of Whitney's reporting on domestic violence in Oklahoma at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch. You can find those stories on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.